ओम ज्ञान ज्ञानंदन सरकाय चक्षु मिलुपाराय कृष्ण प्रस्थाय बुतले भक्तिदातामे नमस्ते सरस्वती देवे गौरवाणे प्रचारणे निविशेषून्यवादी पश्चाचरे सधारणे देवं दिविधन सुचन्नवर्ण बलाकचलचित सन्द्रानंदपुर सदेकवर्णम वैराग्य विद्युम सिद्धांत निधि सुभक्तिलशि सरस्वतानंबरम वंदेम सुबुदम मदेखम शरण न्यासीश्वर श्रीधार वंदे श्रीकृष्णचैतन्यनंदसहोदी गौरराई पुष्पवंतचित्रोसंदोत्तमोनो श्री गौरीभष्णा गुरुपरंपरा की जाय श्री चैतन्य चरितामृत की जाय श्री कृष्णदास कविराज गोस्वामी महाशाय की जाय सो कंटिन्यूइंग आर रीडिंग फ्रॉम मध्य लीला चैप्टर नाइनटीन Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is instructing Shri Rupa Goswami. In this section, he is describing to him the nature of Shuddha Bhakti, its marginal and its principal characteristics. We discussed that at some length. Mahaprabhu says, "Bhukti mukti adi bancha jari mane hai sadhana kori le prem ut parna na hai." Continuing, he says that if one is infected by the desires for bhukti mukti then sadana kori le prem utpana na hai even though he may superficially render devotional service in sadana he cannot rise to the platform of prem quotes a parmana verse really a verse from rupa goswami's bhakti rasamrita sindhu bhukti mukti spriha jawat पिशाची हृदी वर्तते तवदुभक्ति सुखस्यात्रा कथम अभ्युदयो भवेत फेमस वर्स दिस इज वर्स फ्रॉम द सेकंड चैप्टर भक्ति रसामृत सिंधु मींस सेकंड वेव ऑफ द ईस्टर्न डिविजन ऑफ द ओशन ऑफ भक्ति रसा हु कैन से व्हाट द सेकंड वेव ऑफ द ओशन ऑफ भक्ति रसा इज अबाउट Sadhana bhakti. Well, what's the first wave about? We heard some verses from there. What's the third wave about? Constituents of bhav bhakti. And the fourth? Prem bhakti. And then we go to the uh, southern division, western division. northern division big book so many important uh, principles <coughs> outlined therein so this again is from the second chapter or the second wave of the eastern division of bhakti rasamrita sindhu dealing with sadhana bhakti so bhukti mukti spriha javat pisachi hridi bhartate it says that the ostensibly it appears to say that bhukti and mukti material enjoyment and liberation these are witches in the heart and as long as they're there there's no possibility of relishing pure devotional service ostensibly it says that but a closer look it says that the desires for mukti and bhukti these are like witches to call mukti a witch someone might take objection to that and indeed someone did and I'll tell that that story 
in the course of the discussion, but first let us deal with the philosophical principles involved here. This verse comes, as I said, in Bhakti Rastamrita Sindhu in the second wave of the Eastern Division, uh, just after Srila Rupa Goswami has described the three adhikarans for bhakti. It means the three types of persons who are eligible to tread the path of bhakti. And the determining factor, the principal factor in determining one's eligibility for bhakti is shraddha, faith. So three types means avadikarans or persons who are eligible to tread the path of bhakti means three different types of faith or degrees of faith. Big term and a big subject, of course. And Rupa Goswami describes komal shraddha, tender faith of the kanishta, Adhikari, and then firm faith of the Madhim Adhikari, and the firmer still faith of the Uttamadhikari, Adhikari or persons eligible for, for bhakti. So most of the devotees, of course, they have they are Komal Shraddha, their faith is very tender, so it can be swayed. I've seen other in other places, perhaps at Vishwanachakvati Thakur has stated somewhere that the Kanishta Adhikaran's faith is weak, but it's still he has or she has faith. So we see devotees like this. They have faith, but it becomes weak by circumstance, by influence of outside forces, influence of inside forces. But it doesn't uh, evaporate altogether. And there may be possibility that it could be uprooted by what? By Vaishnava Parad. It's possible. But even then, for the most part, we find it recedes to the background. Krishna said in another place in the Gita, what? Neha bhikramanasho sti pratyavaya nividhite svalupamabhyasya dharmasyatrayate mahatobhayat. A little endeavor on this path is never in vain. The implication is what's gained is never lost. So we may look at it something like that. But then Kanishtadikari's faith being komo, being tender, it can recede to the background and other interests and so forth can take take precedence. Madhimadikari faith is strong, it's tempered by scriptural knowledge and bearing down with one's reasoning power on that faith which can weaken it but make it strong at the same time. Just like if you take if you take steel and you put it in the fire, it becomes weak. It will become like liquid, but if you just pull it out at the right time, then it will become stronger each time you put it in. So the measure of one's faith will be tested by bearing down upon it with reason and shastra yukti, reason based on scripture and so forth, and, and hopefully it will become strong. But of course, we run the risk of it becoming weak, melting also. But nonetheless, we have to move in that direction at some point. And then, of course, the, the, the Uttamadikari faith is fixed. Rupa Goswami said, while the intermediate devotee's faith is fixed, it may not be fully informed. That faith may not be fully informed by the scriptural conclusions. Whereas the faith of the Uttamadikari is informed by scriptural conclusions, Siddhanta and so forth. So, Anyway, three types of adhikarans. Faith is a big topic. It's not really the topic of this verse, but this is the context in which this verse appears. After describing the three types of adhikarans, Rupa Goswami cites a verse from Bhagavad Gita. 
in the seventh chapter, I believe, of Bhagavad Gita, he says, Krishna says what? That there are four types of persons who are meritorious and they surrender to me. Chaturvidha bhajantemam. Four types. Chaturvidha bhajantemam. Worship me. Chaturvidha bhajantemam. Jnana sukriti nadriya. Artu artarti jignasu jnani chabharatarshaba. Something like that. Four types of persons. The persons in distress, persons who are in want of something material, persons who are curious, persons seeking knowledge. The idea is that sometimes these people, they take shelter of Krishna. And in the course of taking shelter of Krishna, he removes those desires and they get bhakti. Rupa Goswami, in other words, says these four types of people are not examples of bhaktas. Classic. The classic example is of these four given in the Shastras, the distressed person, Gajendra, the elephant, who had met with the crocodile on the crocodile's turf, where he became weak, of course, and the crocodile was strong. That time, he, this is described in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam, he prayed to Lord Krishna, it's an interesting section, actually. He prayed for the Absolute Truth, who is formless and nameless. And the formless and nameless Vishnu came. Jiva Goswami made a nice comment that, oh, he's praying for the formless and nameless, and the formless and nameless Vishnu appeared, which means that the formless and nameless means no material form, no material name. Otherwise, how by praying for the formless, Vishnu could appear. So... He's the no-form form and the unnamed name, the named, <laughs> something like that. So, Vishnu came at any rate and saved him. Because he took shelter of him, even though not for reasons of bhakti, the Lord, by his grace, showed compassion, removed those ambitions, his call for distress, his need for savior of sorts, and gave him bhakti. Dhruva Maharaj wanted the kingdom, went looking for that, Vishnu came to him also. And what did he say when Vishnu came? Oh, I've been looking for broken pieces of glass and I found a valuable jewel. So Vishnu removed from his heart the desire for that kingdom. Still he gave him the kingdom, the Dhruvaloka. Shonaka led the rishis at Naimisharanya. They were asking questions of Sutta Goswami. They didn't really weren't inquiring about bhakti. They were making some general inquiries. The answers they got were all about bhakti. So the Lord, through the grace of Sutta Goswami, removed their inquisitiveness to know and gave them bhakti. Chatushan, the Kumaras, they had a desire for moksha. This is removed and they got bhakti. So Rupa Goswami says, these four are not types of devotees. They don't illustrate the adhikar eligibility for bhakti. As he's already given the eligibility for bhakti, he kind of contrasts it by mentioning these four, but says... In certain instances, these types of people, out of their piety, they'll take shelter of the Lord and they'll get some special concession. These desires will be removed and bhakti will come in. Then he cites this verse, the idea being that as long as the desires for for bhukti, which means material enjoyment, and mukti reside in the heart, you cannot have pure bhakti. They've been described like witches, so witches inhabit the graveyard. So bhukti is a graveyard, no doubt about it.
means the karmic plane. In the karmic plane, all our plans that we make are nothing but grave digging. That's all. And for the most part, digging a grave, an unknown grave. Not even a well-known grave. Not even a famous grave. And even if it's famous, how long will it be famous? How long will people come to it and pay tribute? Fame in this world is, is not very lasting. It may endure for a hundred years or a thousand years or few thousand years, but at any moment anything can change. A meteor can come and strike the planet and graveyards and the living and the dead will be removed and forgotten forever. So movement in the karmic plane is all like only like grave digging. Our plans are only only for that. Shermer used to like to quote that poet the plans of great men lead only to the grave. Something like that. So witches like to, to inhabit the graveyard. So this mukti is compared to a witch. The desire for that is like a witch. It's haunting the heart and like taking it on the back of its her broomstick to the graveyard only. And mukti also, that is also a graveyard. A different kind of graveyard. But it is, a, it is a, even a deeper graveyard. Hard to imagine. But this is the perspective. This is how the great devotees from their vantage point have described this. Of the two, bhukti and mukti, ordinarily it will be certainly thought that bhukti is far worse than mukti. The desire for material enjoyment is far worse than the desire for liberation. But this is not the opinion of the bhaktas. The devotees think that the desire for liberation is worse than the desire for material enjoyment. At least with the desire for material enjoyment we're serving our senses. There's some... There's some activity, some kind of service going on. And everything's a manifestation of Krishna, even the material energy. So, for that matter, even in the context of serving our senses in order to gratify them, we, we serve another person's, and so on. And devotees, they frequent the plane of material existence and canvas there amongst the, the, the buktas, <laughs> the material, those in, uh, haunted by material enjoyment. But those pursuing mukti, difficult to tell them about bhakti, or to speak of those who, who have entered into the graveyard of Sayuja Mukti. No scope there for bhakti. And the, and the case is closed, the door is sealed, and the coffin is closed, nailed, and more than six feet down, entering there, and one has no sense of, of self, where to go, there, there's anywhere to go, anything to do. Krishna is said to retire people who bother him into the Brahma Jyoti, into Sayuja Mukti who pester him for eternal life with no ambition to serve him. He retires them there forever. So this has been described, for example, by Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur as He's compared it to hell, worse than hell. So this is the extraordinary uh, vantage point from which the devotees speak, that mukti looks like hell and bukti looks relatively better. So, Rupa Goswami is warning us here that both of these things have to come out of the heart in order for bhakti to really fully take her seat there. So we pray to the Lord's grace that by His grace they'll be removed and bhakti will fully manifest. So I mentioned that uh, this verse appears, it seems it appears to say, or perhaps upon first hearing it, the scholar, who some people say is Balava, who was an elder to Rupa Goswami, a contemporary of Rupa Goswami, but an elder, 
in Vrindavan. We've heard of Balabha, Balabhacharya, in our discussions of Chaitanya Charitamrita a few times now already. He came up in this canto and in this chapter for that matter. He met Chaitanya Mahaprabhu at Prayag. There he met Rupa Goswami and his younger brother Balabha, Anupam Balabha, another Balabha. Balabhacharya was very kindly disposed towards the Lord, but he was a little bit of an outsider to the Lord's inner group. At any rate, he was a great scholar and a great devotee, actually from the Sri Sampradaya, Sri, no, Vishnu Swami Sampradaya. The same uh, Sampradaya is the famous Sridhar Swami, commentator on the Bhagavatam that Mahaprabhu gave so much consideration to. So at any rate, he was a contemporary of Rupa Goswami, an elder, and it's said that he heard this verse while Rupa Goswami was compiling, composing Bhakti Rasamrita to Sindhu. Rupa Goswami composed this book with the help of Jiva Goswami, who is his young nephew and disciple. And it is said that Balava heard this verse and he didn't like it. And he told Rupa Goswami, from the point of view of his scholarship, that it should be changed, the Sanskrit scholarship, because it said that Mukti was a witch and it would be inappropriate to call Mukti a witch, which would imply, I suppose, that the scriptures about Mukti are also witches and so forth. And, and this kind of thinking would be Namaparad, because there's a place for those scriptures. There's a place for them. If one has Adhikar for Bhakti, then he doesn't, he doesn't need them. But if he doesn't, then there's a place for the scriptures uh, dealing with karma and jnana and so on and so forth. So mukti, mukti is also is, is the liberated status. And there are different kinds of mukti, of course, as we've heard just yesterday. There's also devotional types of mukti. So anyway, he didn't like this idea that mukti was a witch. So Rupa Goswami said, oh, all right, I can, I can change it. And then the two, then Balabha went to take bath in the Jamuna, and Jiva Goswami, the young nephew of Rupa Goswami, followed him. And he said to him, you know, that verse of my Gurudev that he said was wrong was not wrong. So Balava turned to him and said, What is this? The upstart disciple of Rupa Goswami, who's junior to me in age and scholarship, is going to tell me that the verse is right when I point out it's wrong and his own guru has accepted my correction. You can imagine he was not very pleased to hear this upstart disciple's a comment, and so he said, what is your opinion? And Jiva Goswami gave the explanation of the verse such that he pointed out what he was really saying there is the desire for mukti, that's a witch. Not mukti, but the desire for that. Oh, then he appreciated it so much. And so then he went back to Rupa Goswami and said, oh, I am your disciple is very smart, very intelligent, and he has great faith in you, and he has corrected me, and I uh, accept his correction. So, what did Rupa Goswami do? These stories have been told over hundreds and hundreds of years, so they're told a little differently sometimes by different persons, but often the story is told like this. And regardless of what the details of these stories may be sometimes, the philosophical point that's made is always the same, and that's what we need to draw from them so that we can apply that in our own lives and make progress. So what did Rupa Goswami do? He chastised Jiva Goswami and told him to leave his company, to go east, and to go back to Bengal, where he had come from. And that's a long ways away. And he had come with much endeavor. 
to get the shelter of Rupa Goswami. Dismissed him like that. What Jiva Goswami did is he went east, but he didn't go as far as Bengal, and it said he took refuge inside of a crocodile's cave, which the crocodile vacated for him. And he lived there a very, very austere life, weeping and crying and and chanting. It said uh, in some places, again, the, the details of these stories are told in different ways, but in some places it said that at that time he wrote Gopal Champu on coconut leaves thatched together. And the Gopal Champu is the final work of Jiva Goswami. So it's such a wonderful work. But thinking that he had written it, but not in the state of grace, not having the, the blessings of his guru, he threw it out into the Jamun and it floated down the river, where further on down Rupa and Sanatana were taking bath. And Sanatana Goswami found that wonderful work. And he asked some people where this could have come from. He said, well, this is one fellow who lives in a cave up here. He's always weeping. You come and see him. He never eats. He just weeps and writes. So he came to that cave and, and there was Jiva Goswami. So he, he went back to Rupa Goswami and he said, in your book you are teaching the principle of Jivadaya. Jivadaya means to be kind to Jivas. Thakur Bhakti Vinoda said, Sarva Dharma Sar, with the essence of all Dharma is Krishna Nam Jivadaya. Chant the name of Krishna and be kind to Jivas. He has explained that inside of Krishna Bhakti is brotherly love, sisterly love. Inside of that. So that if we have a manifestation of Krishna Bhakti that doesn't have that inside of it, it is false. It is lacking. But he teaches us not to try to cultivate it merely brotherly love, but to cultivate Krishna Bhakti. And it should be a byproduct of that. That love for humanity also manifests, not a hard-heartedness towards humanity. So Rupa Sanatana Goswami says, You are teaching Jiva Daya. Yes. But there is one Jiva that you are not showing any Daya, any mercy. And he explained the condition of Jiva Goswami, how he had kept himself, and so on and so forth. And so Rupa Goswami came and gave him his mercy again, and gave him his company, his blessing, and so on. But it's important for us to note that how Jiva Goswami responded to Rupa Goswami's chastisement, which, if we think about it, we'll think, my goodness, what did he do wrong? He defended his guru in the face of a, of a proud scholar, whether it was Balabha or whomever, some say it was Balabha. I don't like to say that Balabha was proud, but then again Mahabhava did say that also himself about him at one point. But we are nothing compared to Balabha. We are a mountain of pride, all of us, compared to, to such a person. But at any rate, if Mahabhava wanted to call him proud, then that's his prerogative. Anyway, whether it was him or whoever, we say, for the sake of the, the Leela, a proud scholar chastising your guru, and you rise to the occasion and defeat him. Would you not be expected, you would think, to do such? And after you've done so, and you haven't gone to your guru and proudly announced it, I've defeated him. But the person has come who was defeated and said, Oh, your disciple has defeated me. I please accept my obeisances. Now you would think that, that the guru's heart would swell with pride in his disciple. And it might, but it didn't in the instance of Rupa Goswami, in relation to Jiva Goswami. He chastised him and banished him from his company because he felt there was some pride in Jiva Goswami. 
because Rupa Goswami himself was prepared, right, that can change the verse. No problem. You want to be the scholar? That's the abhiman you have, the ego you have. All right, get that. Fine. No problem for me. Just like sometimes this story is also told in relation to another similar instance where one fellow wanted to defeat Rupa Sanatana Goswami in debate. You may know the story. And so they tried to get a debate match. He tried to get a debating match with Rupa Sanatana Goswami and they wouldn't, they didn't want to waste time. So they just wrote on the paper, yes, we've been defeated by you. Now please leave us alone. So he went around waving the paper everywhere. I defeated Rupa Sanatana Goswami in debate. See what is my position. And then it said the Jiva Goswami saw that and said, oh, you defeated them? Then you must be able to defeat me because I'm your disciple. So let's have a debate. And of course, Jiva Goswami obliterated him in the debate. And so then the word came back to Rupa Goswami and Rupa Goswami banished Jiva Goswami. This is another way in which it's told. But the point is the same. He's defending his guru against the proud scholar. But Rupa Goswami felt that you should follow my position, which is, I don't care. If he wants to defeat, think he defeated me, then fine. I don't need to prove that I'm not defeated. We should stand so firm in truth that it doesn't have to be proven by anybody else or borne out by popular opinion. We should be comfortable knowing I did the right thing, whether everybody agrees with me or not. That doesn't matter. Shudha Maharaj used to like to say that I lived most of my life alone, but at least I had the pleasure of being able to speak the plain truth. We can think about it in different ways, but for whatever reason, one point to be drawn from this is Rupa Goswami chastised Jiva Goswami. And nowadays, gurus chastise their disciples for obvious reasons of their mistaken conceptions and activities and thoughts and so forth. What kind of reaction do we get? Oh, they want to fight with their guru. They want to show that they're smarter than their guru. They know better. There are so many backseat drivers. They would have done it like this. It should have been done like that. Why he's criticizing me? Why he doesn't talk to me? He doesn't even criticize. Maybe he doesn't like me. All this kind of foolishness. We should take the example of Jiva Goswami. What kind of example of a disciple is that? One thing he did is, in one sense, such a wonderful thing. But his guru chastised him, he just took it. That's it. He took the chastisement, he left, he lived in a cave, he was practically fasting till death. Such conviction he had that without the grace, without the blessings of my guru, Prabhupada used to say, my country, England, right or wrong, something like that. So, this way we should have this kind of conviction in, in guru. Actually, we are nowhere without, without a guru, that's a fact. But we don't think like that. We don't realize that. And... Um, we tend to take the concept very, very lightly, but our shastras are full of examples to the contrary. We should try to take heed of that. And this nice story comes out in relation to this particular verse. So, otherwise, in, in terms of the philosophy that's being presented by Mahaprabhu to Rupa Goswami, we should know these things, the desire for liberation and for material enjoyment. We find these things in our hearts, and we should try to chant, at least with a view to retiring them. Otherwise, until we reach that point, bhakti that we're after, that won't come into our heart. So, are there any questions? Yes? You explained it, um, explained it three different types of bhakti-dhara. Mm. Now I'm reading now the 11th canto, and there's these three different types of 
Well, it can be. There could be a dis, uh, it could be distinguished, but generally we find, and often the acharyas quote these verses to illustrate three different kinds of devotees. Although technically speaking, the verses in the Bhagavatam speak of three different types of Bhagavatas, and these verses that I mentioned in Bhaktivedanta seem to speak of three different types of persons eligible for. Bhakti. But if they're eligible for bhakti, then they're also bhagavatas, bhaktas of some sort. But it's more specifically talking about eligibility. Then at the same time, it's all about shraddha, standing in shraddha, standing in the world of faith, and so on. So for the most part, the acharyas have kind of used them interchangeably. They are thought to describe the same phenomenon, three different types of devotees. They give different details. In eleventh canto, then the Kanishtadikaris who has faith in the deity, Archon and so forth, but he doesn't have faith in the devotee. Madhimadikari is characterized by four things, makes friends with other devotees, worships the Lord, avoids them the envious and shows kindness to the innocent people. Uttamadikari is seeing the Lord in everything, everything in the Lord, like this. So they're quite different descriptions than the descriptions given in Bhakti Samhita Sindhu. So we can see them as a, as further details about these different types of Bhagavatas. Or we can also sometimes say this is a reference to the eligibility, this is a reference to the Bhagavata. But as you can see from the way I'm explaining it, there's a kind of a merger there. There's no meaning to a Bhagavata who doesn't have faith. Who has faith is a Bhagavata of some sort. Do hmm? you follow? Another question? All right, it's time for the Arctic. We'll stop there. Shri Chaitanya Chiritamrita Ki Jai. Umagyana Dumirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chaksurumitam Vena Tasme Shri Gurve Nama Mande Shri Krishna Chaitanya Nityananda Sohodito Gaurajai Pushpavanto Chitra Sandhutamunado Sisi Gaunitinandaki Jai Chitana Chitamritaki Jai Sri Krishna Skaviraj Goswami Mahashaiki Jai Guru Vaishnava Guru Paramparaki Jai Jai Sikhaisi Bhaktivedanta Sami Prabhupadki Jai Bhaktivedanta Siddhadeva Goswami Maharajki Jai Reading from Madhilila Chapter 19 Lord Chitana's Instructions to Rupa Goswami Verse 177 So we've been hearing about Bhakti as Mahaprabhu has explained it to Rupa Goswami. We're hearing that through the pen of Krishna Kaviraj Goswami, who in this section really is taking us on a brief overview of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So his principal Pramana verses that he cites, his verses of evidence for his Bengali statements, are drawn from the book of Rupa Goswami, the seminal work, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Uh, we heard the description of Bhakti, Anyabhilashita Shunyam, Gyan Karmadiyan Avritam, Anukulena Krishnanu Shilanam Bhakti Uttama. And the supporting verses, which were from the Pancharatra, Mahal Pancharatra, and from the Bhagavatam, that 
are cited by Rupa Goswami in support as Pramana verses for his own verse in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So all these have been quoted by Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami in support of his statements in Mangala. And then we heard another Pramana slope from Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Rupa Goswami's own composition, describing the desires for karma and gyan to be like witches haunting the heart of the devotee. And as long as that haunting from those witches is taking place, then and to that extent, bhakti cannot, will not manifest there. So, that was an important verse and um, stresses the importance of, in a sense, of the Tatastalakshan of Uttam Bhakti, which is? Right. Which is of the desires for karma and again we want to be freed from. And of the two, which is worse? The desire for karma or the desire for gyan? Gyan. And that's a funny idea of our religion. I think we discussed that, right? So today, Krishnaskabharaj Goswami says, Sadhana bhakti hoite hai, ratira udai, rati garda hoile tar, premanam kai. He takes us now from a generic description of bhakti to a description of sadhana bhakti. The previous verse we discussed is also as we mentioned, coming from the chapter of Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu dealing with Sadhana Bhakti. But this verse more directly of Krishna's Kaviras Goswami speaks to us about the actual process, if you will, of Sadhana Bhakti. He says, Sadhana Bhakti Hoite Hai Ratira Udhai. So this Sadhana Bhakti is that engagement by which rati is developed. Rati means bhava. It means attachment for Krishna, love for Krishna. He further says, rati gada huile tat premanam kai and the intensification of that rati is what we call prema. So in one verse here he's described Sadhana Bhakti and Bhava Bhakti. What is Sadhana Bhakti? There's a nice verse from the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Uh, I believe it must be the second verse of the second chapter that is not cited here. For some reason, he doesn't cite that. As he's really giving it in Bengali anyway. But Prabhupada cited it in his purport here. Kriti Sadhya Bhavit Satya bhava sa sadana idha nitya siddhasya bhavasya prakatyam bhidhisadhyata The idea is that sadhana bhakti is that which results in bhava. Now bhava bhakti is actual bhakti. When we say bhakti proper, he has bhakti. means that he has attained bhava. Bhava which is constituted of the Swarup Shakti 
of the Lord is manifested in this heart. Who can give me a verse describing Baba Bhakti? Good enough. <laughs> so, Shuddha Sattva Visheshatma, a particular expression of the Shuddha Sattva, Shuddha Sattva Visheshatma, of the means of the Swarup Shakti of the Lord. That means what? The Swarup Shakti is constituted of Ladini, Sambit, and Sandini Shakti. So a particular combination means the manifestation of the Ladini and the Samvit Shakti. Samvit Shakti is the cognitive aspect of the Lord's internal energy and Ladini is the joy, Ananda aspect. So when he's manifest in the heart of the devotee, then he has power. Some people say that that Samvit Shakti is not manifest in the Prem of Braj because it's constituted of a kind of ignorance, kind of a divine ignorance. But actually the fact is that it is manifest there, but it's predominated over in Braj, Bhakti by Yogamaya. So it's really correct to say it's not there. It's, it is manifest, but... It, under the auspices of or predominated over by Yoga Maya. So it, it is a kind of knowledge that is, uh, it appears as ignorance. It is the highest knowledge appearing as ignorance. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's Prem, of which uh, Bhav is a uh, ray, so to speak, of the sun of Prem. Just like this, if we can, Bhagavad is compared to Prem to the sun, so Bhava is a ray of that. Prema Suryang Susamyabak. When the ray of the Prem dawns in the heart, therefore, the idea is that Bhava is the same as Prem. It's like the ray of the sun is of the same nature and constitution as the sun. So, as this verse says, as it's intensified, it turns into Prem. But first half of the verse talks about how to get to that bhav, which is, as Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu says in the verse that Prabhupada cites here in his purport, it's eternally existing. The point being made in this verse is, with relation to it being eternally existing, is that it's not a product, it's not something that's produced. Sadhana Bhakti doesn't produce bhava bhakti. But by the activities of sadhana bhakti, which involve engaging our senses in hearing and chanting, Jiva Goswami has given an example. If you perform a yajna, then the actual yajna itself is one thing in a sense, but all of the activities that are required to come to the stage of performing it, like gathering the kusha grass and the particular type of wood and all the ingredients and so forth. You can't experience that yajna without that, so all of those things are also part of the yajna. So our activities with the physical senses of hearing and chanting that are enforced in the stage of sadhana bhakti, 
at least in the stage of the sadhana bhakti before ruchi comes, there's some force. By the force of intelligence and the order of the guru and, and one's desire for bhakti, we engage the senses in hearing and chanting. Hearing and chanting about Krishna, that's bhakti. That's what the devotees who have bhakti do. But manifesting on, in the senses of the devotee in the stage of practice, so therefore one may question, is that bhakti? And as I said, Jiva Goswami gives the answer, it is bhakti, because just like gathering all those ingredients for the yagya are necessary for the yagya, and are included as part of it, so this sadhana bhakti is a kind of bhakti. It is a real division of bhakti, as is bhava bhakti a real division, and as is prem bhakti a real division. So it's threefold. It's all mentioned here in this verse. This is what he's saying. There's three kinds of bhakti, or three manifestations of bhakti. Sadhana bhakti, bhava bhakti, and prema bhakti. What is sadhana bhakti? Sadhana bhakti is those activities that give rise to bhava. So we can know that we've done sadhana bhakti when we attain bhava bhakti. At the same time, again, as I'm pointing out, the commentators have all been quick to point out, to, to stress, that this bhava is not a product of that sadhana because it's not within the realm of cause and effect. It's eternally existing. It eternally exists in the nityaparikars of the Lord, the eternal associates of the Lord. They are the vessels, so to speak, the ashraya lambana vibhav, the vessels of particular tastes of bhakti rasa, like the gopis and the cowards and the servants of friends of Krishna and the, and the elders and so forth. These are the four bhavas of braj that uh, Mahabrabhu came to to give to the world, to make available to the world in his descent. So there are examples of all of these. There are the kind of reservoirs of these vessels, the embodiments, and they are, we should say, manifestations of this Nityasiddha Bhava or Nityasiddha Prem. Chaitanya Chaitanya says what? Krishna Prem Nityasiddha Sadya Kabunai. Same idea that we're discussing. This Prem of Krishna is Nityasiddha. It's eternally perfect, eternally existing. It's Sadya Kabunai. It's not a product of, it's not caused. But what happens is, by hearing and chanting in the stage of sadhana bhakti, even with some force, some effort, engaging ourselves in these types of activities of bhakti, hearing and chanting, the senses become purified. So, shravanadi sudhachite, by hearing and chanting, etc., the senses become purified. And when the senses are purified, then bhava manifests in the heart and it takes over because whatever's in your heart, then the body is the chariot of the of the heart. Wherever the heart wants to go, then the chariot is, is moving accordingly. So then what happens is these activities of hearing and chanting, they take over the, the consciousness of the devotee and therefore his senses as well. And in that stage of bhava-bhakti, the hearing and chanting is 
different than in the stage of sadhana bhakti. In that stage, that hearing and chanting is actual bhava. What do we call that? We call those anubhavs. So this will come, Mahaprabhu will further describe all the ingredients of rasa, which includes the anubhav, the vibhav, anubhav, sattvika bhav, vibhichari bhav, stai bhav, proper combination of all these ingredients is what gives rise to, to rasananda. But here he's speaking about Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami or Mahabharata Rupa Goswami about sadhana bhakti giving rise to rati or bhav bhakti. And so there's so many stages that we go through, right? For that we go through from shraddha to sadhusanga, bhajanakriya, anartanivitti, nishta, ruchi, asakti, and then we graduate from sadhana bhakti to bhava bhakti. And because bhava bhakti is a ray of the sun of prem, cultivating that that ray, cultivating that bhav, it turns into prem bhakti. So, here he's described in a very uh, concise way as sadhana bhakti is that which gives rise to bhava and bhava is that which gives rise to prema. We say, as I've mentioned, that that bhava bhakti or prema bhakti is nityasiddha, it's eternally existing in the great devotee. So how does it come to us? It comes to us through this guru parampara by way of great devotees engaging us in sadhana bhakti and sharing their their faith with us, their experience with us, their hearts with us, their bhav with us. We have like a drop of potential for bhav in our heart, but without an o- being in touch with a, a channel, it can never join the ocean love of God. So the Guru Parampara is like a channel, creates a channel that the potential drop can, rather than evaporate or it won't evaporate, but it's it's kind of dehydrated, <laughs> in a sense. So uh, you make it moist and cause it to um, saturate the heart and the consciousness, melt our consciousness. So we require that connection. We can say that the Shakti of Krishna is many, or we could say that it's one. Just like we can say there are many forms of the Lord, or we can say there's one. There's one Supreme Lord, but he has many manifestations, different avatars and different purposes and so forth, but he's one. Similarly, the Shakti of the Lord is often described as innumerable, but as there's Swayam Bhagavan, so there's Swayam Shakti. So Radha's the Swayam Shakti, one Shakti, and she is, in essence, Ladini and Bhav and Mahabhav. The essence of the Surup Shakti is Ladini, the essence of Ladini is Bhav, and the essence of Bhav is Mahabhav, something like that. Krishna's Kaviraj has explained. So, in a sense, although we are the Tatasta Shakti, still we have some connection with that Surup Shakti. And so there's some potential for us, inherently, within us, for functioning like the Swarup Shakti. But that tendency will never be realized because it's weak. We are a manifestation as a Tathasta Shakti, but there's some trace of that in us because that's our the origin of all Shaktis. 
but it's weak and it can never realize that independently of a connection, a greater connection directly with that Shakti. So while we say it's in the heart, in potential, at the same time it can never be accessed, it can never be realized without the connection of the Guru Parampara. This is the idea. It's not, however, that the Guru manufactures that thing. No. It's eternally existing, it's in a dormant condition, and he, the Guru, uh, the Guru Parampara, helps it to come out through engaging us in all the practices, sharing his faith and bhakti with us, and he shares it through engaging us in all these practices. If we don't engage in these practices, then we're not taking part of the affair. We can't expect to get any uh, result. We, we're dependent upon the mercy of the Guru. Yasya prasadat bhagavat prasadat yasya prasadat nagati kutopi. What does Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur say in his commentary on Bhagavad Gita, in the second chapter, what is that verse? Krishna speaks about one-mindedness, being fixed with one's intelligence. What does Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur say in his commentary? Yasya prasadat bhagavat prasadat. This is one-mindedness. By the mercy of the Guru, we can get the mercy of Krishna. And then he goes on to say, so what does it mean to get the mercy of the Guru, to live on the mercy of the Guru? He says, to live in all these practices. So it's something tangible. It's not just some mystical, how do I get the mercy? The mercy is to live in that which he's given. He's given us the mantra, he's given us the Krishna Nam, and all the devotional practices and setting an example for us of how to do them, not just the theory, but setting an example for us. So we have to do like that. Otherwise we can't expect to get the results. We're praying for the mercy, but it's, uh, it's already come to us in this form. So to live on those practices, this is to live for the mercy of the Guru. So in, in this way, we can say potential for loving Krishna and potential for realizing all that we can be, uh, whoever meant to be, is possible by this uh, connection with Guru Parampara. So, Bhaktivinoda uses the language Ananda Khan, so that like a like a particle of Ananda. Otherwise, the jiva is generally described as Chitkana, a particle of Chit, but without Ananda. Whereas the question of Bhakti. With chit, we may get self-realization, some kind of sayuja mukti, something like that. But what about ananda? So it's not possible for that in the full sense without this kind of connection. And then that means to be, as I said, engaged in this type of practices. So all through the in here in the first half of the verse, he gives, he implies sadhana bhakti, going through the stages of shraddha, sarasanga buddhinakriya, anantanivritti, nishta, ruchis. Asakti, one comes to, to Rati. This is sadhana bhakti. So do come to that, then you can know you've, you've really engaged in sadhana bhakti. And then, then there are further talk. Not so much need for that talk now. First do all these practices and pass through these stages. Then talk about that cultivation that continues in the stage of bhava bhakti. You have to have some bhava to cultivate that bhava. To talk about cultivating bhav without having gone through the stages of sadhana is a little premature. 
first get the bhav, then is talk about how to cultivate that and develop from bhava bhakti into prema. So, any question? Yeah. Hey, Johan. So, we must to follow some steps, like from uh, uh, Satana bhakti to bhava bhakti, prema bhakti, starting beginning from Shraddha. Then, it's possible from some great souls across these steps and uh, obtain immediately like from a bhakti. What we may find is, what we will find is that devotees are engaged in these, passing through these steps and uh, sometimes taking lifetimes. So they may come to bhakti in this lifetime having gone through some of those stages in a previous life. Then they will connect and very quickly go through the stages that they already went through. They'll again go through those stages, but very quickly. And then they'll be stuck at that stage where they left off. And then the work is more difficult to go from Nishta to Ruchi, for example. So it may seem that some devotees go through very quickly. Bhaktivinoda Thakur is kind of an example of that himself. He seemed to go through very quickly all the different stages. Of course, we consider him in a particular light having come to, to teach about all these things from the other side. That's another thing. And by the influence of Yogamaya, he appears as a sadhaka. In general, if one's heart is pure, then he or she will go more quickly. That means, for example, if one comes to bhakti out of distress, or if one comes to bhakti out of desire for uh, material fruits, material acquisition. If one approaches the Lord and takes shelter of Him for either of these ideas, and the Lord is merciful for, to him and gives him engagement in bhakti, then his progress will be slower than those who come as seekers or those in pursuit of knowledge. For example, in the book of Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Jaiva Dharma, if we study, we see the two principal characters at a certain point are Brajanath and Bijay Kumar. And they were well studied in the scriptures, the Bhagavad. They had knowledge. They were uh, Jignashu and uh, Gyani, this type of bhaktis. So they made quick progress. In Bhagavatam's second verse of the first canto, it said, Immediately, the Lord becomes arrested in the heart of one who desires to hear the Bhagavatam. In one sense, this tells us what is the subject of the Bhagavatam. That if you become interested in that, Krishna will become imprisoned in your heart. Of course, the principal subject of the Bhagavatam is the love of Radha for Krishna which is what is celebrated in the Braj, directly, indirectly. That's what it's all about, in assisting roles, in supporting roles, and so forth. So that's what the dramas of the Braj Leela is about. Still, we don't find that that happens, doesn't seem to happen to everybody. But just by becoming interested in hearing the Bhagavatam, Krishna becomes imprisoned in their hearts. So Jiva Goswami's comments on that verse are such that he 
points out that this is so for one whose heart is pure, for a person in, in, in knowledge. When we say in knowledge, I don't mean that he's a smart guy or anything like that, but has a purified heart through sacrifice and selflessness and so forth. We can make him purify, get a pure heart, relatively free from material desire, desire for material acquisition. In that heart, you see, in a clean heart, if our heart is dirty, if it's colored rather than clear, then that color has to come out first. And then when it's clear, like a prism, crystal, if you take a crystal, what happens if you take a crystal and you put it next to a red rose? Then it will become red. But if you take a red-colored stone and put it next to a blue rose, it won't become blue, will it? So the, the color in the heart means uh, material desires. So that we have to engage in bhakti such that that comes out. Then when it becomes clear, or there may be other means of cleansing the heart. So if someone has been involved in that and it comes to bhakti, then next to the color, rag also means color. So next to that color, it will take on that color and proceed rapidly. So our progress depends upon how much progress we've made in the past. What is our background to some extent? And of course, our sincerity and and all in this life, association, there are many factors. But it's a kind of a cumulative process over time. Another question? All right, so it's time for our taking a stop there. Chaitanya Chaitamrita Kichai.